me this morning to the book of Revelation chapter 5. Revelation chapter 5. We have been studying for several weeks now the book of Revelation. And last Sunday morning I dealt with chapter 4. We come of course to chapter 5 this morning. While you're turning there, let me make these two further announcements. I'd like to meet with our nominating committee Uh, This Wednesday evening at 6.45, you men who will be here, of course, on Wednesday night. Revelation chapter 5, I want to talk to you this morning on who owns this world anyway? Who owns this world anyway? A lot of folks apparently think that they do. Some nations, some leaders, uh, the bully of Baghdad undoubtedly begins to think and suppose that he does. But who really owns this world anyway? That's what chapter 5 is actually all about. And we find it interestingly written for us under divine inspiration beginning at verse 1. And these words of the scripture are heard to say, And I, that is John, in his vision on Patmos, and I saw in the right hand of him that sat on the throne a book, Literally, a scroll written within and on the backside sealed with seven seals. And I saw a strong angel proclaiming with a loud voice, Who is worthy to open the book and to loose the seals thereof? The word worthy is a very noteworthy word in this chapter, by the way. Some four, perhaps five times you'll discover the word is used. Who is worthy to open the book and to loose the seals thereof? And no man in heaven nor in earth, neither under the earth was able to open the scroll, neither to look thereon. And I wept much because no man was found worthy to open and to read the book of the scroll, neither to look thereon. And one of the elders saith unto me, Weep not. Behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, hath prevailed to open the book and to loose the seals thereof. And I beheld, and lo, in the midst of the throne and of the four beasts are the four living creatures. And in the midst of the elders stood a lamb as it had been slain, having seven horns and seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God sent forth unto all the earth. And he came and took the book out of the right hand of him that sat upon the throne. And when he had taken the book, the four beasts and the four and twenty elders fell down before the lamb, having every one of them harps and golden vials full of odors, which are the prayers of saints." And they sung a new song saying, Thou art worthy to take the book and to open the seals thereof. For thou wast slain and hast redeemed us to God by thy blood out of every kindred and tongue and people and nation. And hast made us unto our God kings and priests and we shall reign on the earth. And I beheld and I heard the voice of many angels round about the throne and the beast or the living creatures and the elders. And the number of them was 10,000 times 10,000 and thousands of thousands saying with a loud voice, worthy is the lamb that was slain 
to receive power and riches and wisdom and strength and honor and glory and blessing. And every creature which is in heaven and on earth and under the earth and such as are in the sea and all that are in them heard I saying, Blessing and honor and glory and power be unto him that sitteth upon the throne and unto the Lamb forever and ever. And the four living creatures said, Amen. And the four and twenty elders fell down and worshipped him that liveth forever and ever. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we have read this portion of thy word that is so thrilling. There's such an exhilaration in my own heart as I think of this wonderful, majestic, marvelous scene that John witnessed in heaven. We pray that our hearts may come to understand what you're saying and that, Lord, the word of God will penetrate our hearts and minds. Help us to realize that we are on a planet that has a destiny. We are living on a, on a world and in an earth that, Lord, you have designed for special purpose. And we are people whom you have designed and created for definite plan and purpose. Help us to understand something of that today. May the Holy Spirit bring conviction of sin. May there come a stirring of the heart of thy people, a new challenge, a new vision to realize that our opportunities are limited as our days are numbered. We're soon approaching these wonderful events that John in his vision foresaw. Help us, we pray, to be alert and to be sensitive and responsive. And we'll thank you in Jesus' name and for his sake we pray. Amen. Who owns this world anyway? Since the very beginning of man's history, there have been those who indeed tried to gain control of this world. They felt themselves worthy. They felt themselves sufficient. And they felt indeed that they should sit on the throne and rule this entire world. I think in history of Alexander the Great. I think of a man like Genghis Khan. I think of a man like, uh, uh, like Napoleon. I think again of Hitler who thought in his own heart that he should be the ruler and the king of this world. Many a man has had the high and lofty dream that he would be the ruler and the owner of this world. I think yet again of men like David who was indeed a marvelous king. A man like, who followed him, his own son Solomon, who reared a majestic kingdom and brought Israel to the forefront. But yet when you look at David and Solomon and men like Alexander, Genghis Khan, Napoleon, when you look at a man like Hitler or any other attempted leader or ruler of the world, you must realize and come to the conclusion that none of these men ever truly ruled or owned the world, nor indeed were they worthy to be the ruler of this world. I think of David, the splendid man that he was, the wonderful character that he was, and of whom the scripture said he was a man after God's own heart. And yet I find flaw and sin and corruption in the life of David. 
I find David is guilty of greed. I find him guilty of murder. I find him guilty of adultery and sexual immorality. I look at Solomon, yet a man of great wisdom to whom leaders of the world flocked and traveled to hear and to see this great leader of, the, of his world and of his kingdom. But yet I find there was much flaw in the life of Solomon himself. He went after many strange gods introduced to him by the numerous wives that he had. A man who seemingly had an insatiable appetite for the opposite sex. And yet here is a man who indeed some may have considered worthy, who may have considered because of his wisdom should have been the rightful ruler. But none indeed were worthy, nor have they ever claimed a title to this very world. Who is then the rightful owner and the worthy ruler of this world? Well, the passage before us literally gives to us the one who is deserving and who is the rightful owner and ruler of this world. I hear the psalmist shouting out in Psalm 24 and verse 1. The earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof. Certainly we would all agree here today that this earth belongs to God. That he alone is the rightful ruler of this planet called earth. And so here before us in this passage of scripture, you're going to find God's final decree of who is the rightful owner and who is the rightful ruler of this very present world. Of heaven itself. If you were here last Sunday morning, we looked in chapter four and there looked upon the throne of God. What a scene of grandeur and majesty and thrill that very scene was. For there, bowing before God, who is seated upon the throne, a throne that appeared, that, that spoke of indeed that sacrifice, but spoke of sovereignty as well. That throne now is seen where men or creatures bow before and honor him as the sovereign ruler of this world. He is the majestic God the 24 elders who are representative of those who indeed are followers of that God. They bow before him in adoration and praise and worship. They cast their crowns before him. And yet at that throne, we saw last Sunday morning that from that throne proceeded lightnings and thunderings, which spoke of a coming storm, a storm of judgment that indeed is to come upon this world and deliver the very kingdoms of this world into the hands of our blessed and lovely Lord. So in chapter four, we wound up in verse 11 as they begin to cast their crowns before that throne and they begun to say, thou art worthy, O Lord, to receive glory and honor and power. And notice the last verse of chapter four. For thou hast created all things and for thy pleasure they are and were created. Here we wound up in chapter four seeing that God is the creator of this very world and that he created this world for his own pleasure. And so here the, the, the rejoicing is heard around the throne. But now in chapter 5, there is indeed a wonderful, a stirring, an emotional-filled chapter and truth that we're going to search out. I want us to look at four or five things, and let me just give you the words that will keep our thoughts in line 
and help us to remember even after the service today. Let me ask you that first of all, in verse 1, pay attention to the scroll. The scroll, that is the book that is seen in verse number 1. In verse number 2 and 3, if you'll note the search, a search goes on in this very court scene of heaven. The search. In verse number 4, you'll find the sobbing or the sorrow. The sobbing, the weeping of, of even those about the throne and John himself. And then at verse 5 and 6, you'll notice the presentation of the Savior. The Savior in verse 5 and verse 6. And then at verse number 8 through 10, observe, if you will, the supplication, the prayers of the saints. And many a saint has prayed a prayer, by the way, that until this very day has never been answered. Jesus taught his disciples to pray this prayer. And many, a, many teeming hundreds and thousands of people have prayed this prayer. And many have prayed it this morning, but it is yet unanswered. But I tell you, it will be. And then in verse 11 through 14, notice the shouting that takes place. So follow, if you will, in these simple words that will govern and guide our thoughts and give us understanding of this particular chapter. Now John said, I saw in the right hand of him that sat on the throne in the hand of God a scroll written within and on the backside sealed with seven seals. The book, as I've already suggested and mentioned, is literally a scroll, a rolled up scroll. Now here you'll find there is evidence for us to believe that this very scroll from all that is said is undoubtedly the title deed to this earth and this world itself. It is the title deed. Maybe I could help us to get in focus the entire book of Revelation if I were to give you this simple little story. Pay close attention to it. For example, a man goes out and buys a piece of property. He, makes the pay, he pays the price for that property. But the man now is not able to move in on that property that is rightfully his because there's a renter who is yet in that house that he has purchased. Yet it is his design to move into that house, perhaps we'll say the 1st of November. Here he has bought the house in August, the 1st of November, he's going to move in. It's his, but he's not occupying that that he has already bought. So the 1st of November comes around and the fellow goes out to now take possession of the property that is rightfully his. But the old renter of the property is unwilling to leave the house that the man has bought and purchased. He is unwilling to leave. The man talks with him, insists that he leaves, but the man says, no, I'm not leaving. So the man who owns the property turns and goes back to the courthouse to acquire the title deed to that very property. And now he takes that title deed along with the sheriff by his side and he goes back out to the man's, out to the place that he has purchased and now insists upon the authority of the law and upon the authority of the title deed that he has that the old renter vacate the premises. But the old renter is still unwilling to, be, to, to move from the premises. Therefore, there has to be force involved in evicting the fellow from the premises. Perhaps a few window glasses are broken, a few chickens are killed, and finally, the old renter is handcuffed and hauled away to prison, and the man who is the rightful owner of that property moves into the property and takes possession of it. 
Now, I hope if you will, remember that simple little illustration and it'll give you the picture of what the book of Revelation is actually all about. You see, the Lord is the owner of this very world by right of creation, by right of redemption. But he, though, who has purchased this very earth by right of creation and by right of the price of redemption, the shedding of his own blood, yet does not have full possession of this very world. You see, the Bible talks about even Satan, who is the God of this world. The Bible talks about it as being the prince of the power of the air. John tells us in the epistle of John that the whole world system lies in the wicked one. That is the world system itself is yet under the dominion, under the control of the adversary, the old renter, the devil himself. And so then what happens here in the book of Revelation is this. Our Lord comes in chapter four and five and now acquires the legal title deed to this earth. It is his. He has purchased it by his blood. And that's indicated by the fact that here is seen a lamb that is slain, a lamb that has been slain, shed its blood, and the lamb of God is our Lord Jesus. But now the old renter, the devil, is unwilling to give up. The Lord purchased this world by right of redemption on the cross of Calvary. But you see, he's unwilling to move, but one of these days, our Lord shall return and will by force evict Satan from this very planet earth and take possession of this earth himself. In chapter 10, by the way, of Revelation, you'll see that John said an angel comes and places his foot on the land, one foot on the land and one on the sea. That angel is indeed the angel of the Lord of hosts, even the Son of God himself. And he comes and claims the territory that is rightfully his by creation and by redemption. And so force is brought to bear. And you'll find all through the book of Revelation, from chapter 6 down to chapter 20, all the horrible things that are mentioned here are acts of assertive judgment on the part of our Lord to evict the old squatter who has taken possession of this world system. And by the way, it was handed over to him by our forefather Adam and our foremother Eve. And yet our Lord, don't say he'll come and by judgment, by fierceness of wrath, by force, he will force the old usurper and will set up his kingdom upon this very earth. In chapter 20 of Revelation, there is the mention of his literal physical reign on this earth for 1,000 years. And after that reign, showing himself as the sovereign ruler of this earth, that very millennial kingdom will merge into the eternal and everlasting kingdom of God where he shall rule forever and forever. Our Lord has been predicted from his very birth to be the ruler, the, show, the government shall rest upon his shoulders. We hear the Christmas message repeated. The government shall rest, he shall be sovereign ruler. And so the scroll, I believe, to be the title deed to this very earth. Now, this title deed, notice this in verse 1. It was sealed with seven seals. Now, you're going to find that the judgments the Lord uses to evict the old squatter in the book of Revelation are categorized under seals, under trumpet judgments, and under vials or bowls. There are seven each of these, seven seals, seven trumpets, seven bowls of the wrath of God that he's going to pour out upon this earth in order to claim that which is rightfully his. And so there are seven seals on this particular document, the title deed to the earth. 
Now, the first thing you're gonna, we're going to take up in chapter 6 is the opening of those seals. And you'll find that a very tragic thing, a move of judgment opens up at the opening and the breaking of every one of those seals. Now, Vespasian, uh, a ruler uh, of ancient Rome, uh, his very will itself was rolled up in a scroll fashion and sealed with his seven seals. Not only him, but Caesar Augustus. His will was in the same fashion. Let me, maybe I can show it to you kind of like this. The seal, the scroll rolled up in a roll-like fashion. It was rolled and a part of that will or that title deed after rolled once was sealed with a seal of wax. There were other things written on that seal. It was rolled again and sealed another time until that process brought about seven seals that sealed that document, the title deed to the very earth. And so then that seal, when it is opened, notice this in your reading of the book of Revelation. Whenever one of those seals is broken, another form of judgment another cataclysmic judgment from God falls upon this earth. What God is doing is evicting the squatter and those who follow him from this earth that is rightly his by creation and by redemption. So the seven sealed scroll, the title deed to this very earth. Now then as we look down in verse number two, I want you to notice here at verse number two and three, a search goes on in this high court of heaven. And I saw a strong angel proclaiming with a loud voice, who is, who is worthy to open the book and to loose the seals thereof? And no man in heaven nor in earth or under the earth was able to open the book, neither to look thereon. So a search goes forth in heaven. There is no angel that is found worthy or that can lay rightful claim to this very earth. None of the elders, none of the 24 elders, none of the living creatures, none of these are worthy. So the search goes on for one who is the rightful, worthy owner of this very earth. At verse number three, no man in heaven was found, nor in earth, neither under the earth, was able to open the book and look thereon. Now, at verse four, here you see the sobbing, the weeping, the sorrow that John himself experienced. And I wept, he says, much because no man was found worthy to open and to read the book, neither to look at their own. Here the word wept is the word sob, a deep emotion. And as John looks around on that scene where there is none at the moment found who is worthy to rule over this earth, ah, oh, he must have been thinking as did every creature in heaven. Is this world forever consigned to the domination of Satan and sin? Is this world forever consigned to the pit as it were and to the slavery of Satan and sin? John begins to weep sorely. And oh, you and I would have reason to weep if there were no worthy one who would rule in righteousness over this earth. And so as he weeps there, now verse number five and six. Verse number five and six reveals, and one of the elders saith unto me, weep not. John, don't weep anymore. There's no reason for sorrow. Behold, look, he said, the lion of the tribe of Judah. Anyone who's read the Bible to any degree knows that is a reference to the rightful rulership of our Lord, the kingship of Christ who came out of the tribe of Judah, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David hath prevailed to open the book and to loose the seals thereof. 
And I beheld, watch this, and I beheld it low in the midst of the throne and of the four beasts in the midst of the elders stood a lamb as it had been slain having seven horns and seven eyes which are the seven spirits of God sent forth unto all the earth. What a scene he behold. He said, here is the lion of the tribe of Judah. But when John looks, notice what he sees. Not a lion, shaggy, ugly, fierce, with teeth showing, but he sees a lamb as it had been slain. John turning now to see the lion, sees the lamb. By the way, the word lamb here is the word actually for a little pet lamb, a little lamb. You remember back in the Passover in, the, in Israel when it was instituted, the lamb that was to be slain as a sacrifice of that Passover was to be kept apart for four days before it was offered. That little word lamb, the little pet lamb, that lamb was brought in the family until mother and father and children really had uh, in a sense fallen in love with that little darling pet. And now after their love had been shown and shared with that little pet lamb, that lamb was taken out and slain and its blood was shed and applied to the doorpost that death would not come upon them. So it is, the word here refers to that little pet lamb. One who has given himself and lived among men of this earth and who is loved, but yet he has become the sacrifice for our sins and not for ours only but for the sins of the whole world. There stood a lamb as it had been slain, no longer dead, as it had been. I believe indeed when we see our Lord Jesus in heaven, there will be evidence of his death for us, scars in his hand and his side, the wounds upon his brow. I think there will be none other scar in heaven but his. And only as a reminder through all eternity of the price that he paid, the sacrifice that he made, what it took to make possible our redemption and our salvation and our eternal home in heaven. So here's the lamb slain, an unusual but yet not, a, and yet not, an, ordinary, not an ordinary lamb. A little pet lamb, yes, but I want you to notice something. That little pet lamb had seven horns which are the seven spirits of God and had seven eyes, rather, which are the seven spirits of God. Speaks of two things. The horns speak of omnipotence, rulership. Here he has seen the lamb, the little gentle pet lamb, but now he has seen an omnipotence, power, all power, the sovereign one, but also the seven eyes that he has speaks of his, all, of his omniscience, his all wisdom, his all knowing that he knows all and rightly knowing all and having all power, he is able and indeed is worthy to rule on the throne. I think of this word lamb, by the way. It's used uh, twice only in the Gospels, only twice in the Gospels. The expression is used only once in the book of Acts. It is used only once in the book of, uh, the, uh, in the epistles and that in 1 Peter chapter, uh, chapter 1, uh, verse 19 but the word lamb is used 28 times in the book of the Revelation. It is the rule, yes, of the sovereign one, but of the suffering Savior, reminding us that indeed he is the rightful owner to sit on the throne and to rule this world for not only did he create it, but he redeemed it by his precious blood. So here's the Savior, very clearly seen. And notice where he is. He is in the midst. That's where he always ought to be. 
in the midst of your life, at the center of your life. He ought to be the center of your home, the center of your activity, the center of your thought life. He ought to be the heart and soul of every man and woman in this building. So he is the Savior. But look at verse 8 through 10. Here John talks about the supplication. And he said, And when he had taken the book, the four beasts, the four living creatures, and the, 20, the, four, uh, the four beasts and the four and twenty elders fell down before the Lamb, having every one of them hearts and golden vials full of odors, which are the prayers of the saints. You see, here is heard again that petition that has been offered to God century after century. That prayer, thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. But I want to tell you this, that prayer, though prayed thousands upon thousands of times, has not as yet been answered. But I'm here to tell you that these come before the throne and with these vials with full of odors are prayers, the prayers of the saints of all of the generations past who have prayed for God's rule, for God's rule upon the throne, for God's will upon this earth, for his kingdom to be established upon this earth. I want to tell you those prayers are not in vain. Those prayers will be answered. God indeed will be reminded in that hour when it is time oh, that my saints, my children, the subjects of my kingdom have prayed long for this hour, for this moment to come. And there before the throne, those prayers of the saints are made aware. And then verse number nine continues. And they sung, not only supplication, but notice a song. And they sung a new song saying, Thou art worthy to take the book and to open the seals thereof. Why? For thou wast slain and hast redeemed us to God by thy blood. I want you to look back in chapter four at verse 11. And notice how his worthiness is attributed to his sovereign power in creation. Verse 11 of chapter four. For thou hast created all things, and for thy pleasure they are and were created. But back here at verse number nine, he is worthy, why? For thou wast slain and hast redeemed us to God by thy blood out of every kindred tongue and people and nation. Notice the word redeem. The Bible is a book concerning redemption. Redemption means the release on payment of a ransom. The Lord Jesus paid that ransom when he shed his blood on the cross and died in the stead of every sinner on the face of this earth. Now then watch. That is the payment, the release that is due us on, pay, on, ba- on the basis of the payment that has been made. But redemption is not simply a redemption of the soul. That is, when we come to Jesus Christ receiving the Savior, indeed there is a redemption. We're released from the penalty and the power of sin and the promise of being delivered from the very presence of sin. But redemption covers not only the soul, it involves or includes the body. This body of yours and mine has also been included in that redemption plan. And Paul talks about in the letter to the Corinthians that we groan in this body waiting for the redemption of the body. In other words, we are fully redeemed by the shed blood of Christ. Not only soul but body, but let me tell you this, in the scheme of redemption, this very world was included as well. 
You see, when man sinned, God's judgment in the form of curse came upon this earth. And as a result, briars and thistles and all the other stuff began to grow up and give man all the problems that he has. But I want to tell you, one of these days, that curse will be lifted and our redemption will indeed be full and complete. One of these days, not only will my soul having been saved, but my body will be redeemed and given a new body into the likeness of the Lord Jesus himself. So they sung a new song, a song of redemption, of the worthiness of the Lord Jesus. And look at verse 10. And has made us unto our God kings and priests, and we shall reign on the earth. Again and again, back in these opening chapters of Revelation, when the Lord wrote to the churches, he talked about on an occasion, to the man that overcomes, overcomes, I'll grant to him to sit with me in my throne. He will reign with me. And the promise of the scripture is the church, the body of believers, will indeed one day rule and reign with Christ on this earth. Now, I'm not talking about some fantasy. I'm not talking about some make-believe story. The Bible throughout its pages concerns that establishing of the very kingdom of God. Read the Old Testament prophets. All of their visions, practically all of their prophecy, related to that establishing of the kingdom of Messiah upon this earth. However, he has not yet cast out and evicted the usurper, but one day he shall and will. Beginning in chapter 6, the Lord begins to show us some of the things that are going to happen on this earth in that period that we have designated on our chart as the time of tribulation. Revelation chapter 6 through 19. Here is the description of all those things that are going to take place. Now let me say in closing this one final word. And I hope, I hope if you're kind of hanging on the edge of what I'm saying this morning, you'll make it a point to be here in every service as we teach through this book of Revelation. It'll just unfold like a, a beautiful bud uh, opening up into a glorious, beautiful flower. It'll just begin to open up. But I want you to see this. Here in this period of tribulation, God will begin dealing again with his nation of Israel. You see, at this period in which you and I live, if you'll notice here just in our chart, beyond the cross, we have the word church, Revelation 2 and 3. This is the age in which you and I are now living, the age of the church, the period of the grace of God. But one of these days, the Lord will come in the clouds, according to 1 Thessalonians 4, verse 15 through 18, and with a shout, the voice of the archangel, the trump of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. We which are alive and remain be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. In other words, this is when the church is gathered out and that event can happen today. There is nothing that has to take place yet on the calendar of prophecy before the rapture of the church. So it could happen today. And yet, let me tell you, when that happens, that's the end of the God's dealing with the, and the age of the church with the Gentile. The fullness of the Gentile come in. God will begin to deal with Israel in that period known in the Old Testament as the day of, days of Jacob's trouble. God will deal particularly with Israel as well as all the inhabitants of the earth. God will deal severely in those days. You see what's happened now. I don't have time to go into this. The prophet Daniel in his vision said that there would be a period of 483 years that God would deal with his people after that 483 years. Messiah would come, would be cut off. 
And from the very time of that prophecy until Jesus came, died on the cross, 483 years. But he said in reality there be 400, actually he used the term 70 years, but there'll be 490 years that God said, I'm going to deal with my people. But only we have in the record of fulfillment 483 of those. We got seven years left, which fits into the period of the time of the tribulation of God's dealing. God said, I've determined these t- this period, this time, this, these days upon my people Israel. But you see, he's dealing with them of the cross. It's like a fellow playing basketball. He plays down here and the time clock running. It's running, it's running. And all of a sudden something happens and the coach calls, time out. Now a lot of things may be going on down there, but as far as the game itself, the time clock has stopped. The game has stopped. So it is. At the end of 483 years, after Daniel's prophecy, the Lord Jesus came and God said, time out. I've dealt with Israel 483 years. There's yet another period that I'll deal with them and that'll be when we start the clock moving again. And when Jesus comes in the clouds, if he were to come today and gather out the believing born again children of God, the Lord from heaven would say in essence, start the clock again. It's time to start. And there would be a period of seven years that remains in God's plan for the children of Israel. At which time, at the end of the tribulation, our Lord and his church shall come literally to this earth. The Lord will place his feet on the Mount of Olives, Zechariah said, and the mount will split half in two. From very mount from which he ascended after his resurrection, he will come back to. And I want to tell you, my friend, everything on, in your newspaper, everything that you're hearing on television today about the Middle East is no coincidence. It is according to God's plan as he's shaping up nations, aligning nations for that great and final day that God has talked about for centuries that will come the great battle of Armageddon when nations will be gathered in. The judgment of God will come and our Lord will set up his rule upon this earth. Now if you think all that's happened in the Middle East and it's just a coincidence that Israel has become a nation and your generation and mine and that all these conflicts in the Middle East are coincidence, you need to open your Bible and find out what's going on. We are, the stage is being set day after day, and the present Middle East conflict is no coincidence. God is drawing the nations of the world into the Middle East. And I don't have time to deal with this, but I'll just give you something to app- give you an appetizer. In Ezekiel 38 and 39, listen to me, God has prophesied that one day Russia, the kingdom of the north, is going to come down on Israel and there will be the doom and the damnation of Russia. Read it for yourself. There is no mistake about that prophecy. I talked to an Israeli captain when I was in the native country of Israel. His name was Ali Israel. And I said to him, Ali, tell me this. As a military man, what do you make of the presence of Russia in the Middle East? Replied with one word, and that was war, war. The bear of the north is determined to come down and take up the resources of all of this country. I think it rather strange, too, that in this present crisis, all Russia does is sit back and let us use up all of our resources, sparing all their energy and muscle, doing not one blessed thing about the bully of Baghdad. And yet again, Russia will play an important role in the fulfillment of prophecy, I guarantee you. But here, what I'm saying is this. Finally, look at the shouting at verse 11 through 14. They ascribe to him power. 
Thou art worthy. Thou art worthy. You're the one, the rightful ruler who owns this world anyhow. And anyway, the Lord Jesus does. And it's strange. People talk about owning property. You pride yourself in owning property? You think you do. You just got it on loan whether you know it or not. What you have is yours and what I call is my property literally belongs to God anyhow. And one of these days he's going to rule over this very earth. And yet, they're ascribing in verse 11 through 14 power that is authority, they're saying. Rightfulness, authority, riches, that is resources. He's got the resources to rule. Not only that, but they ascribe wisdom to him. He knows not only what to do, but he knows how to do it and do it right. They ascribe to him strength. That is, he has muscle to enforce his very rule on this earth. You think the United States has power? You think Russia has power? You think, uh, you think uh, Iraq has military power and might? Listen, that's a gnat that's, that's compared to an elephant compared to God's strength. God has the muscle to back up anything he says. And I want to tell you, it wouldn't take a bomb. It wouldn't take chemical warfare to wipe this planet Earth out of existence. All God would have to do is just simply speak a word just like he did when he brought it into existence. That's power. Power, strength, and honor. That is reverence, respect, glory they offer to him. That is first place. You're number one. You're in the first place. And they ascribe to him blessing. That is abundance, joy, happiness, good ascribed to him. I'm glad that none of the past men who have attempted to rule this world have succeeded. Every one of them, there is corruption in them. Vileness, sin, crookedness. All of the governments who have ever ruled, you find corruption coming out. Even in our blessed country of America, corruption is constantly being heard out of even our national and governmental leaders. None are worthy, save the Lamb. No sin, no guile found in Him. He was the perfect Son of God who came to this earth and died in the place of imperfect, sinful men and women like you and me. I'm glad that I know Him and I'm glad that I can tell you, you can know Him today. You can walk out of this house today a subject of God's very kingdom. You can walk out of here a child of God, promised by, the God, by God himself that one day you'll rule and reign with him. I'm glad, hallelujah, I'm on the winning side. The world thinks they're winners, but listen, this world without Christ are losers. Those with him shall rule and reign. His promise, not mine. God said it, he'll see to it. I don't have to worry about it. I don't have to try to make it happen. God said I'll make it happen. He's made everything happen so far. Many things that, listen, people can buck and snort and try to kick against God, but everyone is how God just brings it back. Look at the Middle East. People think, boy, at least God has a way of drawing them in, doesn't he? He even talked of Russia, said I'll put hooks in their jaws. I'll draw them in. All of that black oil, all of the minerals in the Dead Sea, all of the strategic locations. Listen, God help us today. If you and this audience are here and you do not know Jesus Christ, I beg you, I plead with you right here today while there's time. Open your heart. Invite Jesus to come in. For one day every knee shall bow and every tongue will confess that he is Lord. In that day, it'll be too late. Today, it's not too late. In that day, it'll be a coerced bowing and acknowledgement. That will avail nothing, but today if you'll buy unwilling submission of heart, the Lord Jesus reaches down, cleanses, touches us, makes us his own. He'll save you today if you'll let him. I pray you will. Let's bow together for prayer.
We're going to stand in just a moment. I want to give you an opportunity today to get ready for these coming events. I want to tell you, folks, I read out of a Mother Goose book today. I read and showed you out of this old book the things that not one thing has failed. And it's time we use some wisdom in our lives. My friend, the thing that's going to really count when it's all wounded up is how you stand with God. How you stand in relation to Him, that's the thing that's going to count. Not how much money you have in the bank, what kind of property you own, the car you drive, clothes you wear, how much education you've got. It's whether or not you know Him. I plead with you today, if you do not know Him, that you'll do it now. I may be talking to some child of God here today. You've let sin creep into your life. You've gotten away from God. You've drifted away from Him. You've been unfaithful to Him. You need to come asking God's forgiveness today. And after all He did for you as a child of God, certainly, certainly there's a hunger inside to grieve Him no longer with our sin. I urge you to come. If you're here today and you wish to unite with our church by promise of letter, statement, or for baptism, I want you to come. And especially, again, if you're lost, you've never trusted Christ, you don't know you're saved, I want to ask you to leave your seat as we stand in a moment. Walk down this aisle. Give me your hand. Let me bow with you here for just a brief time of prayer, help you to know how you can have Christ as your Savior. Let's stand, please. Our heads bowed as we pray together.